Welcome to the 21st episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. In this month's episode, I'm going to do things a little differently and cover things not in chronological order, but more in order of groupings of where the shows took place, since I covered heavily between this month and the following month to come, the New York Musical Festival. I also attended two shows at the Encore's Off Center program, a bunch of off and off off Broadway shows, and I finally got to see Pretty Woman on Broadway, and I'll talk about that one as well. For those of you who are new to this podcast, my main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences in relatively concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. Another goal of this podcast and my blog is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to check out a play, a musical, or a theater company that you may not have known about. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater visits I attended in July of 2019. As always, you can visit the website for more up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's get started. It was a busy month. We'll start with five off-Broadway offerings, four of which were plays. The first, In the Green at Lincoln Center. People like me, with unhealthy theater addictions, are occasionally rewarded for their willingness to let talented artists take them somewhere unique, fascinating, creative, and wholly original. In the Green is a new musical written by and starring Grace McLean. I've seen and loved her work before in Natasha Pierre in the Great Comet of 1812, this season's Alice by Heart, the Duncan Sheik musical, and the simply awesome Bedbugs, three exclamation points after that one. I have no idea why that show didn't run forever. It was just great. Well, in her new show, she takes us on a powerfully feminist musical journey based on the true story of Hildegard von Bingen. Hildegard is one of medieval history's most creative figures. As a composer, she wrote Ordo Virtutum, an early example of liturgical drama and probably the oldest surviving morality play. She also wrote texts about theology, botany, and medicine. She is credited with liturgical songs and poems. At the age of 42, she was commanded by a presence called the Living Light to write down her visions. Pope Eugenius III heard about her writings and approved of them, giving her instant credence. That support from the church is likely the reason so much of her work still survive. That particular pope, Eugenius III, is the one who proclaimed the Second Crusade and later made a saint. In the Green mostly occurs prior to this prolific output. When Hildegard was eight years old, she was given to the Catholic Church as a tithe or a sacrifice. She was the tenth child of a noble German family who may have done so as political positioning. She was assigned as a handmaid to Jutta von Spanheim, a noblewoman who became an anchoress. That's somebody who withdraws from society for religious reasons. 
Jutta took her last rites and locked herself in a cell connected to an abbey church, living as a dead person to the outside world. Young Hildegard was locked away with her until Jutta died 30 years later. Miss McLean has taken this fascinating history and crafted a powerfully commanding chamber-like show. In the Green is a psychological dissection of the relationship between these two women. The self-exile of Jutta takes place from 1106 to 1136. Imagine what it was like to be a woman living during the Middle Ages. In the Green confidently proclaims its worldview by demonstrating this is how you gain control. Flooded with superlative creative flourishes, this musical soars. The piece is indeed religious and somber, but Miss McLean brings a snarky edge to her book and portrayal of Jutta that surprises and gives the show a sharp edge. This woman locked herself up for 30 years pretending to be dead. She sees the way. If you kill your every care, your burden will be less to bear. Rachel Duddy, Ashley Perez Flanagan, Mia Pack, and Hannah Whitney are ideal partners playing multiple roles. The harmonies are difficult and beautifully executed. While there is a feeling of medieval to these songs in their dissonance, the use of a loop machine to Miss McLean's voice adds texture and a modern touch to her moody and introspective songs. Director Lee Sunday Evans orchestrated a team of first-rate contributions for this uniquely quiet and boldly theatrical musical. Kristen Robinson's set design rotates to reveal the inner world where two women will bond and where Hildegard will finally emerge from. Barbara Samuel's lighting design is fascinating in its use of shadows. The sound design by Nicholas Pope enables the loop idea and disparate harmonies to join in an exaltation that is both religious and angry. In the Green is not a show for everyone, and two people skedaddled in the middle of this 90-minute performance. For fans, though, of abundantly imaginative stagings that serve to beautifully enhance a story, this is an infinitely rewarding visual and auditory delight. For fans of the medieval era, this musical is a thoughtful slice of history with a unique perspective. The story of Jutta and the emergence of the brilliant Hildegard is a radically feminist one. A note in the program states that Miss McLean was interested in remembering and celebrating this extraordinary woman, and in doing so, I want to knock her off her saintly pedestal in order to recognize her humanity. This tale about women making their way through a world that is hostile to them should seem less relevant today. In addition to its masterful staging, In the Green is also lightly commenting on the incomplete progression of women in our societal era. This largely female creative team and cast have truly given something special that is worthy of the ladies commemorated so memorably in this show. Next, we'll go to the Roundabout Theater and the play Tony Stone. Tony Stone was the first female professional baseball player. I did not know her story. 
Lydia R. Diamond's play illuminates this groundbreaking woman now largely forgotten to history. She joined the Indianapolis Clowns in 1953 as part of the Negro League. Miss Stone took over second base from Hank Aaron the year earlier. In a series of time-shifting and narrative storytelling, this tale unfolds. Born Marcinia Lyle Stone in Bluefield, West Virginia, Tony Stone knew early on she wasn't boy crazy. She was ball crazy. It is round and small and fits right in your hand. In April Mathis' exceptional portrayal, there is no shred of doubt about her commitment to the sport. Appropriately, nine actors will form the onstage team and play all of the characters in her orbit. Other than Miss Mathis, they are all African-American men. You should expect gender bias. The underhanded wheeling and dealing of professional sports will be chronicled. There will be racial problems when the squad ignores the prearranged plan. After beating a white team, they run for the bus to get out of town fast. The simulated insults hurled at the players from the stands is rough terrain indeed. That's because you've unfortunately heard most of them before. You get more than what's expected in this play. That's good and bad. There is the interesting courtship between her and future husband Alberga. Alberga was played by Harvey Blanks in an excellent portrayal. We also meet the Irish priest who convinced her parents to let her play with the boys early on. We spend a considerable amount of time with a brothel madam who is apparently her best girlfriend. There is plenty of sexual innuendo. And when plot ideas run thin in Act 2, there is a barrage of can you top this Yo mama is so fat jokes. There are, however, some memorable lines in this play. One of my favorites concern the inevitable aromas which Miss Stone had to face traveling in buses during hot summers playing ball around the country. Nothing is more foul than the sweat of a man you are annoyed with. I love that Tony Stone was extremely literal. This character trait fueled many jokes. When told she would not be thrown out of bed for eating crackers, she replies, Why would anyone eat crackers in bed? They're too messy. Pam McKinnon's direction keeps all of this moving along, but is not able to hide that there is not enough story to fill two hours. The longer the play went on, the less engaging it was. I appreciated learning about and respecting this fascinating pioneer. The acting from the entire ensemble, led by April Mathis' central performance, was never less than stellar. From my seat, the play itself was just okay. I predict a movie will be made on this rich historical material. With actual ball-playing footage, Tony Stone might again get the hugely deserved moment in the spotlight of some of our most memorable female heroes. Next on the double bill, the rarely performed Dog's Hamlet, Cahoots Macbeth, presented by the Potomac Theatre Project. Dog's Hamlet, Cahoots Macbeth are two early plays by Tom Stoppard, which were written to be performed together. Both use Shakespearean text to overtly entertain while being subtly subversive. 
Presented by the Potomac Theater Project this summer, the double bill is enormously entertaining. In Dog's Hamlet, the actors speak in dog. This is a language which uses English words with completely different meanings. When three schoolmates sit down for lunch, one asks, Undertake, Sun Pelican, Crash, Frankly, Sun Mousehole? From the actions on stage, you know that they are trading sandwiches. Mr. Stoppard is teasing us with learning a new language, and in this very short play, some of the words actually will stick. A delivery man named Easy arrives. He speaks regular English and cannot understand dog. Blocks are being delivered, and the assembly is a confusion of miscommunication. They are arranged and rearranged, eventually to form a stage. A very edited version of Hamlet will then be performed. The riff here is that Shakespeare's language is unintelligible to students. A 15-minute farce is then presented with some famous Shakespearean lines intact. The second short play is Cahoots Macbeth. Czechoslovakian by birth, Stoppard met playwright Pavel Cahoot, who had been banned by authorities from working. In 1978, he created LRT, Living Room Theater. They opened with Macbeth with five performers and one suitcase. Stoppard pointed out this inspiration. His recreation, however, is semi-serious and comedic, not, and I'm quoting, a fair representation of Cahoot's elegant 75-minute version. Set in the late 1970s, this Macbeth is staged in an apartment in Prague. An inspector from the government will interrupt the show to sniff out illegal activities, namely any unauthorized and therefore subversive productions. Easy shows up in this play to deliver blocks again, only now he only speaks dog. The homeowner notes, we're not sure if it's a language or a clinical condition. That character crosses the two plays and Stoppard's point is clear. Dog is a form of resistance. In front of the totalitarian regime, a secret coded language could be used to inspire and oppose suppression. The play was intended as a tribute to Kahoot and others forced to endure such conditions. The backstory is essential to a deeper appreciation of these plays, but they are certainly fun in their own right. Fans of Shakespeare will certainly delight in the liberties taken with the original text. Fans of well-directed, strongly acted plays will find this funhouse immensely satisfying. Director Cheryl Ferron has assembled an excellent cast who pop in and out of every conceivable entrance and exit. The pendulum swung between tragedy and ridicule is remarkably effective. Now is a very good time to experience this playfully experimental work. Our current political climate more than hints towards authoritarian and dictatorial behavior. Words are used as powerful weapons. It's quite comforting to be reassured that words can also be manipulated for good. I plan to use vanilla squirrel every time I mean rotten bastard. Thanks for the text translations, Mr. Stoppard. Now I'd like to talk about the second production being presented by the Potomac Theater Project this summer. Havel, 
the passion of thought. Five short plays are presented in a combination entitled Havel, the Passion of Thought. The centerpiece is three of Vaclav Havel's inherently political and autobiographical Vanek plays. The fictional Ferdinand Vanek is a dissident playwright whose work has been banned by the communist regime in Czechoslovakia. Surrounding these fascinating and completely different works are two short plays by Harold Pinter and Samuel Beckett. The entire bill is exceptional theater from start to finish. Pinter's The New World Order begins with two men in an interview room hovering over a hooded prisoner seated in a chair. Michael Lawrence and Christopher Marshall taunt him. They are relishing the idea of what they are going to do to him and his wife. The torture speech is quite relaxed and unspecific, which makes the verbal assault chilling. The tone of oppression is firmly established. They are, quote, keeping the world clean for democracy. Havel's Vanek plays follow. All three involve the man named Vanek, played outstandingly by David Barlow. He was once a successful playwright, but has since been silenced by the authorities. The first is titled Interview. Forced to work in a brewery to support himself, Vanek is subjected to a meeting with the brewmaster. Over the course of a beer-fueled conversation, we learn that the boss has been asked to spy on him. Private View takes place in the apartment of Michael and Vera, played by Mr. Marshall and Emily Cron. Vanek has been invited to admire their redecoration. This hilariously self-absorbed couple obviously is not suffering under the regime. They desperately want to help their best friend and heap increasingly insulting advice. The absurdities escalate to a satisfying and exasperating ending. The third play is perhaps the most potent. The idealistic Vanek can see the suffering of those who have fallen over and adapted to communist doctrine in the first two scenes. Protest makes us hear that conflict. Old friend Stanikova is a fellow artist who telephones Vanek out of the blue. She was a cooperative type who abandoned morality for a successful career in television. Why has she called after all this time? Years of complicity have finally caught up with her. The debate about her choices is fascinating. What makes these plays so interesting for the audience is to see the world through Vanek's eyes. Much of the time he listens. Are they judging him or themselves? Since Hall's plays were banned at the time, they were performed in living rooms and distributed as Samitzat, which is dangerous dissident self-publishing. The character of Vanek became quite well known, and other authors also wrote plays about him. The character became a national symbol. After the Velvet Revolution, Havel was elected president of his new country. The short Samuel Beckett play, Catastrophe, was dedicated to then-imprisoned Havel and concludes this collection. A protagonist stands on a box. The theater director barks orders to her assistant, 
often drinking shots to get inspiration. The scene is extremely demeaning. This piece can be seen as overtly political about the struggle to oppose totalitarianism. It can also be seen as an insider joke about the behavior of actors, playwrights, and directors. In either interpretation, the visuals here were stunning under Haley Zeiselman's lighting design. I caught these five plays as Trump was attempting to stifle members of the opposing political party during his self-adulating fascist rallies. In protest, Stanakova says, The way I see it, you and your friends have taken on an almost superhuman task to preserve and carry the remains, the remnant of our moral conscience through this present quagmire. The thread you're spinning on may be thin, but who knows? Perhaps the hope of the moral rebirth of our nation hangs upon it. Directed by Richard Romagnoli, this exceptional troupe of actors brought all of these important works to vivid life. Havel, The Passion of Thought, is a thoroughly absorbing evening in the theater. The timing is certainly ideal. Pair this one with the Potomac Theater Project's similarly excellent Dogs Hamlet Cahoots Macbeth being performed in repertory. Let all these playwrights show you an urgent glimpse into a not-so-distant past where government aggressively suppressed dissent. My fifth and final production off-Broadway this month also concerns itself with oppression. All five of them did in one way or another. This one is entitled Hannah Sinesh, and it was presented at the National Yiddish Theater Volksbien. Spiritual resistance in the face of oppression is the theme for this season of the National Yiddish Theater Volksbien. Their programming has been curated to accompany the exhibit Auschwitz, Not Long Ago, Not Far Away. Hannah Sinesh, the first of four main stage productions, is definitely worth a journey to the Museum of Jewish Heritage in Battery Park. Hannah is an iconic heroine from World War II. She was 22 years old and living in Palestine when she volunteered to join with British forces in their fight against Hitler and the Nazis. She parachuted into Yugoslavia and successfully crossed the border into her native Hungary. She was captured, tortured, and executed in 1944. The play is a living, breathing diary using Hannah's own words. She introduces herself as a 12-year-old on June 14, 1934. She's thinking about dress colors, becoming a vegetarian, and her obsession with Leslie Howard in the Scarlet Pimpernel movie. She's young, vibrant, and smart. By November, she notes that the present atmosphere is getting warlike. Since much of this play takes place well before 1944, Hannah's growth trajectory comes to vivid life. A delightfully charming entry as a 15-year-old extensively describes her ideal boy. An impossible list ends with, so far I've not met anyone like that. As a proud Jew, she starts to feel the growing anti-Semitism in a series of increasingly disturbing events. The recollections from this personally observed and recorded history through the lens of this young woman 
is sobering. Hannah joins Zionist youth meetings and believes that creating a Jewish homeland is a historical imperative. Her mother thinks she is tempting fate. Others are converting to Christianity in a display of ostrich diplomacy. In 1939, she departs for Palestine. Unbearable stories are emerging of atrocities being committed against Jews and others by the Nazis. On January 8, 1943, she writes, I've got to get back. Lexi Rabadi makes an outstanding off-Broadway debut as Hannah Sinesh. She opens and closes the play as her mother, Catherine. With minimal hair and costume changes, Hannah ages a decade. The entire play is essentially a monologue, and Miss Rabadi completely captures the stage and our hearts. The core defiance and pride within Hannah's soul is laid bare. David Schechter has written and directed his play based upon the translated Hungarian diaries and poems of this courageous woman. There is a nice pace and flow to the storytelling. Props and movement are simple and effective. Rather than a chilling tale, Hannah Sinesh celebrates the incredible heroism of a young woman driven to face fascist oppression head-on. The story is inspirational, remarkable, and heartbreaking. The lighting designed by Vivian Leone beautifully frames the mood as we travel with Hannah on her spiritual journey. Some of Mrs. Sanesh's poems are set to music. One, two, three was composed by Elizabeth Swatos to words found in Hannah's cell after her execution. I could have been 23 next July. I gambled on what mattered most. The dice were cast. I lost. I visited Auschwitz for the first time last year. The physical experience was overwhelming despite knowing this history. The massive scale of hatred and cruelty stayed with me long after that day. Genocide is still not dead in our world. Hannah Sinesh is a play for those of us who need a hope-inducing candle lit in the darkness of ceaseless inhumanity. You may be saying to yourself right now, lighten it up already. So let's go to the New York Musical Festival, although I can't make any promises. Let's see what's on the mind of those talented people creating new works, bringing new ideas, and telling stories they want to tell and what they're about. The New York Musical Festival nurtures the creation, production, and public presentation of stylistically, thematically, and culturally diverse new musicals. The New York Musical Festival is also known by the acronym NYMPH. Four NYMPH shows eventually reached Broadway as title of show, next to normal, chaplain, and in transit. Ten full productions will be staged with sets and costumes this year. There were also 11 readings with scripts in a rehearsal studio. These shows are all works in progress, so let's start and go through them one by one. The first was a reading the wonderfully titled, Everything is Okay and Other Helpful Lies. Melissa Crum and Caitlin Lewins's musical, 
concerns a group of friends who frequently congregate at a local dive bar. The gang is aggressively snarky, with the jauntiness of the dilly-dilly beer commercials. The opening song sets the tone. No one I love is going to die today. Cars are not death traps, and drinking every day is okay. There is a significant amount of focus on sex, culminating in an a cappella, I can do it on my own. Three girlfriends dial Meg Ryan's When Harry Met Sally diner scene to new levels. Even though one character's father dies early on, they enjoy the funeral. Their message for living is stated loud and clear. All you got to do is laugh through shit. Everything is okay, then takes a bumpy turn to more serious fare. The insults get significantly more mean-spirited. The conflicts are far too contrived, such as the fight between two characters when one of their dads hires the other for a job. This show seemed to work best when it concentrated on prickly humor. I made out with your younger brother. I felt like a cougar. It felt good. The best parts of Everything is Okay and Other Helpful Lies are the funny jokes written by Miss Crum and Miss Lewins. The next reading I attended was Freedom Summer. Covering territory frequently mined for dramatic effect, Freedom Summer feels like a musical version of the movie Mississippi Burning. It's June 1964 in Meridian, Mississippi. Voter registration drives add to the pre-existing civil rights tension. Mickey and Rita are members of the Congress of Racial Equality. In the opening song, Drive, they are driving down south to assist in the cause, but are initially met with resistance. Local kid James cannot be hired in a store due to the color of his skin. Don't Shop Where You Can't Work is the protest song which brings focus to everyone. A young man named Andy tells his mom he wants to be part of it all. There are no surprises in the book of this earnest story. The music, on the other hand, is often beautifully melodic. The score was written by Mr. Ray and Sam Columbus. The piano is unquestionably the star of this show. This material is naturally going to be compared to many who have used this history to enlighten and enrage. For Freedom Summer to meaningfully add to our dialogue on America's race relations, the characters will be need to brought to life with more dimensions and backstories. Duncan Sheik and Lynn Nottage's Find the Secret Life of Bees opened last month and is still in my head. As it stands now, Freedom Summer is a generic civil rights story with a highly listenable score penned by talented composers. Next is the first full production I saw in this year's festival, the brilliantly titled Illuminati Lizards from Outer Space. Comparisons have also impacted my enjoyment of Paul Western Petard and Yuri Warrenschick's musical Illuminati Lizards from Outer Space. This show was a reading that I enjoyed during last year's Nymph. This loony conspiracy theory funhouse had silly humor and quirky characters. The show was elevated to a full production and selected to open this year's festival. A few new songs were added, 
a disgraced beauty pageant queen, gets caught in a trap orchestrated by alien lizards intent on ruling Earth. The source material comes from the millions of people who believe interstellar lizards in people suits rule our country. Drugs, sex, and possibly dead humans seem to be in abundance at the aliens' mysterious Scientology-inspired Savra Wellness Center. There's an odd janitor named David who will become a man of action. Brian Charles Rooney, so unforgettable as Dion Salon in Bedbugs, is excellent again here. Tom Deckman was also funny as Klaus, the pharmacological wonder. Celia May Rubin clowned it up memorably in multiple small roles. The central characters of the beauty queen Tina and the lizard mate Guy seem to have evolved. Instead of adorably quirky dimwit and scaly creep, we now have sparkly pageant queen and self-absorbed male model. I could see what they were going for, but the resulting laughs were far fewer. To be fair, the direction was frantic, and the choreography was so repetitive, it did neither the cast nor the creators any favors. The zany and idiotic heart of Illuminati lizards was extinguished far before the laser guns were drawn. This one was a big disappointment. Our next musical was also a reading, Queen E, the Reluctant Royal. Esther's story was the inspiration for Leola Florin Gee and Rick Lukianuk. She wrote the book and lyrics and he wrote the music. The famous story is about a woman who wins a beauty pageant and becomes queen to Xerxes. Her heritage is a closely guarded secret but she will save her people from genocide. The Jewish celebratory festival of Purim commemorates this event. Family-friendly in tone, this musical is an easy tutorial about the serious subject of religious persecution. Esteban Suera is a fine King Xerxes. His obnoxious, self-absorbed dictator is also charming and quite likable. The drunken scene was particularly fun. Danielle Williamson plays Esther as a sincere heroine with a brain and a heart. There was great chemistry between these two performers, and the central storyline clicked. The music is pleasant, but a few songs were slightly awkward. The insomnia scene uses lines like, Where's my Zoloft? which got easy laughs, but had little to do with the story. The evil Haman is humiliated by Xerxes and sings the lightly rap-influenced You'll Remember My Name. That song is almost as out of place as the executioner's number. Darius Wright, as the executioner, razzle-dazzles the song. I'm a guy who really knows how to swing. He performs this as a flamboyant ham while chewing the scenery mercilessly. The song the character, and the performance style is certainly funny. What does it have to do with the story other than some kooky comic relief? I guess family shows featuring murderous dictators need to laugh through the pain prior to the happy ending. Now for the musical full production entitled 
Buried. Performed at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival last year, Buried is a perfect example of the kind of surprise one can uncover at Nymph. The creative team and cast has brought this show from the University of Sheffield via the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Tom Williams directed the show while also writing the book and lyrics. This dark comedy has a lovely, tuneful, folksy score by Cordelia Driscoll. The team graduated from college in 2017. There is a rich connectivity between this material and the performances, which are all dead on. Forgive the pun. Rose and Harry meet and bond quickly once they realize they are both serial killers. Just like me, but in another body. We are not normally sympathetic to this type, nor are we asked to be in this show, despite their troubling backstories. Buried, however, presents two very flawed outsiders with this interesting mirror image twist. Lindsay Mannion is the tough and broken Rose. The performance is relaxed, riveting, understated, and unnerving. She's neurotic and disturbingly sexy, channeling a little Juliet Lewis in her physicality. Sebastian Belli's Harry is every part her equal. He is perhaps the soul of the play. His song, Something Ordinary, is a high point. Four very talented ensemble members play many roles, including victims, potential victims, television psychologists, bartenders, and other roles. Very few shows balance light moments and comedic breaks with emotional drama and intensity as effectively as buried. Mr. Williams's direction and attention to detail are to be praised. I expect this gem will be near or at the top of my best of fest list for this year's Nymph. More importantly, I will see anything these remarkable young writers try next. Buried was a winner. Now let's talk about the musical Ladyship. A lead actress was ill for the performance I caught of Ladyship. One of the composers sat in for her, and the cast did a hybrid reading production in full costume. The presentation flowed seamlessly, and each actor's nicely developed characterizations were evident. Laura and Linda Good wrote this satisfying tale of female empowerment in a male-dominated world. 200 miscreants are sentenced to a seven-year prison term in Australia. The male colonists need women. Ladyship is a musical about a handful of dubiously convicted ladies who embark on that 10-month journey. Young girls and women are shipped off to receive whatever assignment they get once landed. The storytelling is strong and clear, especially in the first act. The latter stages of Act 2 cram too much resolution far too quickly. Without Nymph's time constraints, that should be easily solvable. There are good songs in Ladyship, and the feminist anthem I'm Done could certainly find life outside this show. The cast seemed well-directed by Samantha Saltzman, although I saw only a minimal staging. Caitlin Cohn was outstanding as Mary Reed, the 16-year-old at the center of this story. The actress playing her sister was the one who was ill. Miss Cohn's ability to create a moving, heartfelt relationship 
with someone reading from a script on a chair was impressive. In Nymph's history, 49 shows went on after the festival to eventually mount off-Broadway productions. Averaging about three successes annually, it's a pretty good batting average. Next, we had a reading of Hero, an origin story. Hero is an admitted nerd who runs a comic book store in Jersey City. That town is mercilessly mocked and begrudgingly labeled an affordable Brooklyn. He looks for a roommate and finds her son Morales, an illegal immigrant from El Salvador. Both are gay. Hero is played by Mark Aaron James, the show's writer. He introduces her son to the neighborhood gay bar where the community hangs out, eating burgers and drinking beer. Hero realizes that he looked for a roommate, but instead I got a 16-year-old daughter. Closeted her son's mom is a Seventh-day Adventist, and she's coming to visit. A bodega bandit is on the loose. The bar is located in a building which is being sold for more high-rise development. The real estate villain is cleverly named Archie Nemi. With so many problems to fix, Hero fancies himself a superhero in the show's theme song, I've Got Superpowers. Thank goodness Drag Queen is on hand to fix the ill-filling yellow spandex fashion disaster. Hero feels like an extended maxi-challenge from RuPaul's Drag Race. When the show works, and it often does, the laughs are plentiful. There's the requisite shade, plenty of self-aware meta-jokes, and a heartfelt message to end it all. We can all be heroes in our own little corners of the world. The cast did a fine job. They all looked like they were having fun, which was contagious. Brian Charles Rooney, from this week's Illuminati Lizards from Outer Space, once again showcases his gigantic comic chops playing five roles. A few edits here and there, the laundry song for one, and this little charmer might find a niche for hashtag drag race fans waiting for the next season. Now let's talk about Kafka's Metamorphosis, the musical. A title can be misleading. In this new musical by Matt Chiarini, that is not the case. Two stories run simultaneously through this exceptional work. One is a presentation of the famous novella written by Franz Kafka. The other is the story of Kafka himself. The themes of isolation, guilt, family dysfunction, and absurdity are all present. As this is musical comedy, all existential crises will be served up for maximum hilarity. The Metamorphosis is about a young salesman who wakes up one morning to find himself transformed into a monstrous vermin. He considers his new physical form, noting, I think I'm going to need a lot more shoes. The family is repulsed, and concerned. In the song, We Are the Samsa Family, they sing, We are in a pickle of a dilemma now that Gregor has an antenna. This might sound silly, and the show is immensely so. The treatment of the absurdist source material and this musical's riff on that tone is impressive. Audience members were noticeably smiling throughout. 
The four-member cast is excellent and has been beautifully directed by the composer, who also plays Father Samsa. As sister Greta and mother Samsa, Morgan Smith and Megan Lees make the most of their compassion and revulsion. Jack Rento has the juicy double role of Gregor and Franz. The performance is terrific. I loved how he captured the physicality of a multi-limbed insect with controlled exaggeration and no costume. Mr. Rento is extremely amusing even during the spot-on meta moments. He shouts, Oh no, it's the future Kafka scholars! Kafka's metamorphosis is certainly ready for prime time. For nerdy, wordy, bookish people like me, this show is a medium-rare T-bone sizzling on a hot plate of butter. Right now it's resting after removal from the grill with scintillating crosshatch grill marks waiting to be devoured. A little editing on the joke list resuscitation section and you've got a perfect theater meal. The next production I want to talk to you about is Black Hole Wedding. Sometimes a performance in a show is so good that when the character is not on stage, there is a lull. That happens in Black Hole Wedding. Sean McDermott, who was in Miss Saigon and Falsettos, plays Mr. Dean, the CEO of a large fossil fuel company located in the red state of Oil Dorado. He loves golf, harassing women, and using money to eliminate competition. The epitome of Make America Great Again leads two show-stopping songs, one about golf called The Ancient and Honorable Game, and the other about his prowess, Titan Love Theme. The plot revolves around engineers hired for the firm based on their alternative energy inventions. The evil corporation takes their ideas and buries them. No need to save the planet, profits come first. Raymond is the idealistic hero who falls for Mr. Dean's new-agey office masseuse, Summer. There's a muscular security guy with hashtag MeToo issues. Speaking of inappropriate, Callista is head of marketing and the corporate cheerleader. She implores Raymond to Show me your laptop. Come on, expose it. Everyone in this good cast works hard, but too many jokes fail to land. Quote, This is almost as bad as the time I forgot to bring my cable crimper to camp. Unquote. Quite a few scenes, such as the massage meeting between Raymond and Summer, are overlong. Paul Nelson and Catherine Freddick's musical is filled with fun ideas. The particulate sniffer and the black hole garbage disposal are goofy delights. If the entire show were as tight as Mr. Dean's massage-needing trapezoids, the song Something Undreamed Of might be a good way to describe Black Hole Wedding. The next reading I'd like to talk about is entitled Bisland and Bly. This extraordinary tale is about two women who race each other around the world in 1888. One is the hard-scrabbled journalist Nellie Bly. She had herself committed to an insane asylum for 10 days 
then famously wrote a story for the New York world about the horrible conditions. Elizabeth Bislin was, quote, the most beautiful woman in metropolitan journalism, unquote. She penned stories for the Ladies' Society pages for a rival newspaper. These two pioneering women could not have been more different. Nellie was the girl with the big ideas and proudly boasts, I said I could, I said I would, and I did. This world trip was Bly's idea, and Bislin, who wanted more substantial stories, was convinced to do the same thing in the opposite direction. They were looking to beat the fictional trip taken in Jules Verne's novel Around the World in 80 Days. Elizabeth writes to Nellie, We live in a world where two women can race around the world. We may leave our old selves behind. Marielena de Fabio and Susanna Jones' musical is invested in the emotional journey. The songs Free American Girl and The Light help illuminate what they are thinking. The nail-biting worldwide obsession with the race seems less significant. When it does come up near the end of Act 1, the section felt like a very long travelogue. Act 2 has a lot of additional locations and relationships to cover, culminating in scenes which are both anticlimactic and melodramatic. Bisland and Bly is at its best when exploring what drives these groundbreaking feminist icons. The next reading, Mississippi, the musical. Gregory James Tornquist has written another show which addresses race issues in the Deep South at the dawning of the Civil Rights Movement. Given our country's continued problems, this is not a surprise. Mississippi packs a lot of topics into this musical, including interracial relationships, lynching, incest, juke joints, murder, revenge, and justice. In Hope River, everyone knows everyone. Church folks are the same as those who went to the all-night juke parties. The score of the show reflects the gospel, blues, and hill country music from this area. The songs are tuneful, but the lyrics repeat themselves too frequently. Even the Act 2 opener, Gravy on Top, which boasts about the merits of putting gravy on gravy with gravy on top, repeats the line, turning amusing into repetitive. A terrific Noreen Creighton plays Gussie. She entertains us with that number, only to immediately and awkwardly shift to the story of her lynched 14-year-old son. Her song, Trouble Everywhere, nevertheless, may be the emotional and musical high point of this piece. Kitten is the mentally challenged young white girl who boldly underlines all the messaging. Pronouncements like, everyone needs to stop treating people like they're less, did lead to the clever tune, Unless. A heartfelt effort, Mississippi needs further development on its book. Richer characters and a fuller story arc would enhance the short vignettes outlined so far. As you listen to the various subject matters in this year's Nymph Festival, you get a strong sense of what's on the minds of people, those artists creating new works, and what they are thinking about. Um, The next reading is Brother Nat. Nat Turner was born into slavery in 1800. 
He was a deeply religious man who interpreted the visions he saw as messages from God. Waiting for a sign from the Almighty, a solar eclipse became the catalyst for his organized slave rebellion in 1831. Brother Nat was performed in a reading of the first act and song selections from the second. An angel opens the show with the ballad of Brother Nat proclaiming, Sweet Holy Freedom is Worth Fighting For. Alyssa Jones and Damian Sneed have written a beautiful, often operatic score. The book and lyrics are by Liana and Jabari Asim. Mood setting is well established early on with the song Something in the Air and the other one Wide Awake in Hell. The atrocities of slavery are fully addressed in Negroes to Buy and Whip Song. What you gonna do when I get my wings, asks the enslaved. They are going to fly, fly, fly somewhere in the sky. The metaphors are memorable throughout this show. Possibly my favorite one. Heaven is a note in a songbird's throat. Nat has a gorgeous lament at the end called Father Forgive Me. In this incomplete reading, 26 songs were presented. I've seen enough, and more importantly, heard enough to look forward to watch this mournful and soulful musical expand into a fully developed story. I feel the characters' souls and want to know more about their minds. Another reading is next. The Disappearing Man. On February 21st, 1936, the circus rolls into St. Louis. This musical begins backstage. We meet the performers in a series of exceptional songs which develop character and establish conflict. Sarah is your favorite sin. She knows what you want and lets you in. She is the magician's lovely assistant. His name is Jim Plaster and he is the disappearing man of the title. His act is the headliner of this circus which is struggling to make money during the Great Depression. Andrew Bellows is the ringmaster attempting to hold everything together with his willfully strong ex-lover Daphne. She's the lion tamer and the obvious alpha of this enterprise. Andrew is currently in a relationship with Sarah. Her backstory comes front and center when her brother arrives. The magician is also hopelessly in love with her. I can see Goldilocks and me carving hearts in a sycamore tree. There is a clown named Lloyd, brilliantly played by D.C. Anderson, who is truly dim-witted. He delivers a monologue so organically perfect for the character that at its conclusion, the entire audience burst out laughing. The book and score was written by the very talented John Sood. The music is nicely tinged with a country flair and a nod to the period. Songs move the story forward, or reflect back so we understand the motivations, dreams, and desires of these individuals. As they say, tough luck living is rough, but it's living. The song Whiskey Blues is a wailing lament punctuating the heavy drinking of these people. The plots involving a local impresario and Sarah's brother are tight and believable. 
The ending is dramatic and effective. Wonderfully realized by director West Hyler, the entire cast is excellent. The Disappearing Man is a completely satisfying musical from start to finish. I eagerly anticipate a full staging filled with the sights and smells of this decaying slice of American history. Our next reading is entitled Underground, an Urban Tale. The story by John Viscardi and Thomas Hodges begins promisingly. Brandon is begging on a subway platform, homeless and hungry. Somebody give me my life is the scream in the land of the so-called free. For those of us living in New York, the moment humanizes an everyday occurrence. Unfortunately, everything that follows is either silly or lurid. On the silly side, young Maddie heads down into the hole to make a documentary for school. Her brother Max will film her interviews for The Beautiful People. She meets an underground charmer known as Dormat, but his real name is Aldo Giuseppe Berti Puccini. He escorts them to a magical subway station with a grand piano and a chandelier. Both Maddie and brother Max are smitten with him. Grace is a student struggling to get used to life down under and focuses on her homework. Her mom loses her job and becomes a whore. Grace finds out. This is the lurid side of the tale. We also learn that Brandon has a similar lifestyle briefly described as, quote, all those old dudes you go down on. Back to the fame plot we go to escape these harsh realities. Turns out, Grace wants to attend the High School of Performing Arts. Puccini happens to be a great pianist and teaches her a new song. Add in a few emotional revelations and the kids learn that it is easy to judge from a distance, harder when they are living next to us. Underground and Urban Tale misses the mark by not choosing a tone. As currently written, it feels too inky for a kid's show and too preposterous for anyone else. If you're listening and still upset that Illuminati Lizards from Outer Space was a disappointment, you have another shot at an alien musical. Our next reading, Abduction. In a small Indiana town named Pluto, Pippa Peterson's dad is abducted by an alien. She quickly realizes that the Psy is not Phi. No one in town believes her story. Pippa is told that my mom says you are the victim of demonic possessions and not to look you in the eye. I believe I heard the word perspicuous in the lyric for I'm Pippa. Clever wordplay peppers this entire new musical written by T.J. Pfeiffer, Brad Kemp, and Becky Toth. Pippa's self-absorbed mother offers advice to her overachieving daughter not to fly too fast in life. You could find yourself alone like Cousin June at the Ponderosa Buffet. Best friend Theo and newly acquired gal pal Quinn want to convince the town that Pippa's story is real. Quinn is self-described as a Tim Burton-esque bitch. They know, though, that the apocalypse is the time to be bold, and they crash a party. 
people witness the next abduction. All hell breaks loose, and Father Neil is on hand to offer the Repent Lament. Act 2 opens in the spaceship lobby, and the characters learn of their impending fate. Alien leader Ziggy is Stalin with more lipstick. The song No Tomorrow is a high point, and we wonder if our three heroes can save themselves and fall in love. All of this material is obviously silly fun, and the jokes are amusing. The plot machinations move along swiftly with cute devices such as the dream sequence in Pippa's mind. Abduction is firmly planted in the sci-fi teen musical comedy currently represented on Broadway with Be More Chill. This one shows a lot of promise with good songs, winning characters, and lots of wordplay, as in the song lyrics for Suspicion. Directed by Steven Santa, this cast did a nice job embodying the gleeful spirit of the show. Rocky Patera's standout performance as best friend Theo was marvelously detailed and so very funny. Things get a little more serious next in the production of Leaving Eden. Before there was Adam and Eve, there was Adam and Lilith. The relationship started out well, but Adam kept listening to father's rules. Lilith was far too independent for Adam's vanilla patriarchal ways. He banishes her from Eden. A modern-day Adam and Lily are engaged. They are struggling through a lost unborn child and the related hysterectomy. A version of Eve shows up in both stories. Jenny Waxman wrote the book and lyrics for Leaving Eve. The story can be appreciated for its risk-taking and emotional reconsideration of the famous apple temptation. Female empowerment may have also been the main message, but hating men was also a predominant vibe. When, quote, a smart, strong, beautiful, interesting woman makes a man the center of her universe, well, that's bad, unquote. Back and forth, this story travels between the Garden of Eden and Lilith's apartment. Eventually, Eve and Lilith slash Lily will both confront the Adams on their two different storylines. Together, modern and ancient Adams sing Menage a Song after Lilith sings Tedious Sex. That's S-E-C-T-S. With Eve's help, Adam and Lily will have a baby. The sex is simulated on stage. In Act 2, the modern couple sing The Joys of Parenthood, which feels like a number from an entirely different show. Ben Page's score is pretty good overall, and there's an enjoyable rock groove. I definitely heard a little Jesus Christ Superstar in there somewhere. The five performers were strong singers and nicely developed these characters. I admired Leaving Eden for its ambitious conceit rather than its execution. When strong ideas fizzle throughout a show, a long anticlimactic ending is often the result. Was the biting of the apple a good or bad thing? I'm not sure. The last three nymph musicals I'm going to talk about in this episode include famous people in the telling of their stories. Till is a musical about a 14-year-old African-American who was lynched in 1955. He posthumously became an icon in the civil rights movement. In Flying Lessons, 
a young woman finds her heroes in Amelia Earhart and Frederick Douglass. The musical compositions of Dvorak and Chopin inspire the classical music-loving couple in Overture. First up, the full production of the musical, Till. Emmett Till was tortured and murdered by white men for having allegedly offended a white woman in a grocery store. A Chicago native, he traveled down south to Mississippi in 1955 when racism was prevalent and ugly. Sadly, a photo of three young white men brandishing guns in front of his memorial plaque surfaced this week. Six decades have passed since this tragedy. Skin color hatred is flourishing in America, led from the tone at the top. The musical Till tells this horrific story by setting the tone right away with images of a church burning. The gospel storytellers pick up the fallen set pieces on stage. Rebuilding will happen, as sung in the song, When He Comes Back. Emmett Till is played by the winning Taylor Blackman with some youthful zing. He, along with other characters, are saddled with some generic songs like Proud of Me. The family dynamics are well-established and believable in Leo Schwartz and D.C. Cathro's book. Mamie Till's inevitable implosion as his mother is riveting in the devastating song I Want You Back. Judith Franklin played his grandmother and others in a compelling portrait filled with gorgeous vocals. Devin Roberts was endearing as mom's suitor, and the two had soulful and touching chemistry in their scenes together. Mr. Schwartz's score is gospel and blues, as you might expect. Set That Woman Free and I Suppose were among the finest numbers. The show sometimes stops to ponder the significance of the tale or comment on the mood, such as in Bless This House, these moments slow down momentum. The talented cast showcase all of these tunes very, very well. The actors play the white characters with black masks on. The white women are portrayed as cackling imbeciles. This may be a directorial choice as a sharp rebuttal for minstrel humor. Here, however, it comes across as screechingly cartoonish and briefly throws the show's tone wildly off course. Clearly, we urgently need this story told and retold until it sinks in. Till is a solid effort and was enthusiastically received by the audience. Now let's take some flying lessons in our next production at Nymph. Isabella's Gotta Get Up in the opening song of the excellent Flying Lessons. This exuberant beginning sets the tone for the entire show. She reluctantly gets out of bed and eventually winds up sitting at her school desk. Sarah Allen's creative scenic design uses four painted boxes and four rolling backdrops to memorably transform scenes and locations. Isabella has it tough at home. Her mother works two jobs to make ends meet. Isabella is tasked with many chores in addition to her schoolwork. These familial conflicts and the pain of generational miscommunication is handled in the song, You Don't Understand. School teacher Ms. Young assigns the book report as a final project before the end of the school year. She wants the students to write about someone they admire. Isabella will select both Amelia Earhart and Frederick Douglass. 
both appear in Isabella's dream sequences. These two individuals overcame societal bias to become legends. This musical frames its central message beautifully that if you close your eyes, your future can be anything. The target audience for this show is young people. How do you achieve greatness? Ms. Earhart was the first woman to cross the Atlantic Ocean as a passenger. She persevered and eventually piloted that same journey to make her own history. Mr. Douglas learned to read and write, becoming the most important African-American of the 19th century and a major figure in the abolitionist movement. This musical celebrates risk-taking and endorses following your dreams. Tomorrow's lessons come from today's history. Donald Roop wrote and directed Flying Lessons. As an entertainment, it soars from start to finish. The cast is terrific, especially the four kids. Eric Paraffin and Deanna Quintero excel as Isabella's awkward friends Billy and Madison. Michelle Coben is exceptionally hilarious as the self-absorbed, somewhat ditzy Cynthia. Her song, Like Me, is a knockout. This extraordinarily fine show should enjoy a bright future with its sharp wit, accomplished songwriting, and joyful messaging about the expansive and positive aspects of the human spirit. For our final nymph entry this month, the production of Overture. In 1953, the Kansas City Philharmonic was fighting for its financial survival. Krista Eiler and Barbara Nichols have written their show about the tenacious music-loving locals who saved the day. They added in two fictional characters who adore classical music. Both are searching for personal happiness. This show is so old-fashioned, it is almost hard to believe it was written now. Composer Krista Eiler is Lily, one of the telephone sales ladies for this orchestra. On her lunch break, she sneaks into a rehearsal and sings the lovely, favorite sounds in the world. She accidentally knocks over the pages on the podium and the assistant conductor Christopher is quite annoyed. That they fall in love so quickly after this scene is a simplistic romantic plot you've definitely seen before. In the song Something Says, Christopher asks, Lily, how about us? Have we found something beautiful? Lily is going deaf, but trying hard to keep it a secret. Christopher is unhappy being an assistant under Maestro Hans Schweiger, he is a German caricature who has lines like, Leave me to rot in this symphonic knot. The other administrators of this fundraising effort are Inda and Richard, who clown about with slyly suggestive innuendo and broad humor circa 1950. They open the second act with the song One More Time, which contains the lyric, With his epiglottal in full throttle. The wealthy ladies of the town cannot imagine a world without their beloved Philharmonic, so they band together for a series of fundraising activities. The song The Kitchen Symphony is a bizarre but oddly amusing number about the writing of a cookbook. The ballads are stronger overall, notably Christopher's Worth Waiting For, a definite high point of the show. The chemistry between Krista Eiler and Joel Morrison is sweetly vanilla, reflective of a simpler time. I particularly enjoyed Lily's song, So Far. 
there was a little bit of edge peeking out from this fairly benign character, which added some needed depth and drama. If Overture was aiming for an homage to musicals from yesteryear, the mission was somewhat accomplished. An older woman left the theater enthusiastically proclaiming, I loved it. There may be regional or community theaters with elderly subscribers longing for such easygoing, nostalgic entertainment. As a side note, and welcome nymph bonus, festival attendees were able to experience some of Kansas City's theatrical community here on stage in New York. I'll be finishing up my reporting of the Nymph Festival in the August podcast. From these emerging new musicals trying to be born, let's now go to the Encore series and consider two of them which were born and are now being revived for reconsideration. The first one is a musical called Promenade. Al Carmines and Maria Irene Fornes were important off-Broadway contributors in the 1960s downtown scene. Mr. Carmines composed Promenade and Miss Fornes wrote the book and lyrics. In 1969, this show opened a brand new theater which was named after this musical. The Summer Encore's Off-Center series has revived this largely forgotten avant-garde delight this week at New York City Center. The original production featured Madeline Kahn in a major role as the servant. She left the show before the original cast recording was done. Hollywood found her and she went on to make her feature film debut in What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. I could imagine her in the part while watching Brionne Marie Parham clown it up while singing her operatic coloratura. Promenade is not an opera, nor is it a typical musical. The show opens with two prison guards, number 105 and number 106, digging their way out of prison. The jailer is bragging about being busy with the visiting wives. They escape to begin an adventure in New York meeting all sorts of self-absorbed people in various social strata. They first drop in on a banquet of the wealthy. Mr. S. dismissively tells the servant, We know not what you're about or care to know. The well-to-do are dressed in their finest pimp wear. Clint Ramos's cheeky costumes made me think I was attending a grand family reunion for the character Huggy Bear, from television Starsky and Hutch. At this particular party, all of the ladies sing about wanting to be naked. When a large cake rolls in, this musical's rocket boosters get dialed up to turbocharge. Voluptuous, in her baby doll outfit, Bonnie Milligan slays as Miss Cake, singing, I'm not a morsel, I'm a feast. The song title is Chicken is he. The rhyme? Who doesn't love me? Miss Milligan raises the bar early on, and much of what follows matches her vocal intensity and seriously fun song interpretation. Promenade wages war on the privileged class, but in a tongue-in-cheek fashion. You treated me the way I treat others. Their motto? Money makes you dumb. In the latter stages of this show, the themes get more serious and include a sarcastically comedic anti-Vietnam section, 
Here I am, waiting for the bombs. This show is best described as wild, bizarre, fantastical, radical, hilarious, odd, and period-specific. This is exactly the kind of musical theater treat that should be served up in this series. The cast was excellent across the board. The ladies in particular get extraordinary songs and deliver gorgeous vocals while also generating big laughs. As Miss I, Miss O, and Miss U, Carbon Ruby Floyd, Sarah Joy Ross, and Marcy Harriel made the most of their moments in the spotlight. Lori Woolery directed Promenade with the right tone of archness combined with a healthy dose of buffoonery. The decision to combine both acts into one was not ideal. With 32 songs, the show became a marathon, which is frankly becoming an increasing and very disturbing theater trend. A break in the action might have been advised to let the material sink in before things got more pointedly serious in the second half. Promenade is a musical theater treasure. What's inside is wholly unique and fascinating to see and hear. The other production I saw this summer at Encores was the Stephen Sondheim musical Roadshow. Traveling along the theatrical highway since the 1950s, Roadshow is a fictionalized musical about the architect Addison Meisner. He was the man who initially and very successfully brought the Mediterranean revival style to Florida. Addison was friends with Irving Berlin. When a book called The Legendary Meisners was published, Mr. Berlin wrote a musical which was never produced. Stephen Sondheim started his own version, then it was called The Last Resorts, at about the same time. Mr. Sondheim later collaborated with book writer John Weedman for more than a decade revamping this show. The first outing was the 1999 off-Broadway Wise Guys, starring Nathan Lane and Victor Garber. By 2003, the show was substantially rewritten and called Bounce. Harold Prince directed the Chicago and Washington tryouts, which received mixed negative reviews. In 2009, Roadshow was produced in New York with a major female character dropped along with the intermission. The score won an Obie and a Drama Desk Award for a short-lived production. Working and Promenade were also part of this year's Encores Off-Center program, focusing on musicals about the American dream. Roadshow is a very loose adaptation of the story of Addison and his brother Wilson. When their father dies, they head to Alaska to join the gold rush. Schemer Wilson wins a saloon in a poker game. Despite brotherly love, Addison takes off on a trip around the world, which will ultimately inspire his architectural style. Will Davis directed and choreographed the show, which has been presented in a staged concert version. With more than 20 scene locations and little set, this production seamlessly shifted from New York to Alaska, Hawaii, India, and Florida. On a pivotal train ride to Palm Beach, Addison meets and falls for Hollis Bessemer. Hollis's wealthy aunt hires Addison to build a giant mansion in Palm Beach, and the rest is history. After conquering South Florida, they dream up a city to be called Boca Raton. 
Wilson schemes his way back into his brother's life for the most significant piece of real estate to come onto the market since God foreclosed on the Garden of Eden. Much of this story is wildly exaggerated or invented, but the spirit of these two brothers, the Boca Project, and Addison's homosexuality are not. Mr. Sondheim's music is old-fashioned and very tuneful, with flourishes of his other scores twinkling in now and then. Quite a few numbers were stellar. As Mama Meisner, Mary Beth Peel beautifully sang the very funny Isn't He Something about her favorite son. The Boca Raton ensemble piece was ingeniously staged to lampoon the frothing-at-the-mouth, castle-craving, obscenely wealthy elitists. In a full production with a big set, the song would likely be a spectacle and stop the show cold. This version had to settle on Brilliantly Clever. Brandon Uranowitz and Raul Esparza played Addison and Wilson Meisner. Mr. Uranowitz is always excellent. His Addison blooms from a nerdy follower to a romantic lover to an annoying architect. His duet with Jin Ha, a gorgeous rendition of The Best Thing That Has Ever Happened, was a highlight. Addison's complicated on-again, off-again relationship with his brother is the thread flowing through Roadshow. Mr. Esparza was an ideal Wilson, a conniving schemer who is only interested in playing the game. The character lives large and requires a big performance. That was delivered. When the two brothers sing the song Go at each other at the end of the show, everything that preceded it made the moment vivid and intense. I found I did not like either man, and that to me was a compelling conclusion. Most critics don't seem to like this show. I disagree. I was highly entertained and impressed by this cast and this creative skeletal production. The show is definitely not perfect. For example, the Around the World travelogue has been done better elsewhere. How many more versions of Roadshow will there be? Who knows? My advice at the time this was running to advise people to run to city center to make up their own mind. Sondheim is always worth the trip. Next up, I'd like to talk about three off-off-Broadway productions that I saw this month, all involving men in some sort of trouble. The first one was at the Theater for the New City, the play Barabbas. According to the Bible, there was a prevailing Passover custom in Jerusalem which allowed a crowd to commute a prisoner's death sentence. When Pontius Pilate asked, they chose Barabbas to be released. Jesus of Nazareth was then crucified. Playwright Will T.F. Carter's first play updates the story to a Peruvian prison in 2021. Sebastian Sahak Barabbas is a lawyer who has been sentenced to the Miguel Castro Castro prison in the eastern province of Lima. One of the guards is listening to the newly elected president on television. He is going to rout out those people who seek to tarnish his beloved country for personal or financial gain. Barra has been caught in a title shift and pronounced guilty. Jesus Moreno Glass is a well-known prisoner. He decided to leak emails to the press exposing corruption in the system. Jesus was not innocent of crimes, but decided to reveal the truth. His new roommate is the newly incarcerated Barra, who despises him. 
You're the reason I'm here, you and your conscience. Jesus has turned to God. The tension between the two men is palpable right from the start of this short one-act play. There are some standard issue topics covered, including an uncomfortable bed, sharing a toilet, bad food, and mistreatment from guards. The interesting part of this play is the analysis between the characters about their situations amidst a corrupt world. Jesus knows he won't last inside this prison, saying, Unlike you, I don't have congressional representation. Bada is represented by a lawyer who advises that he needs to let things blow over for a while. He is confused by Jesus's viewpoint, noting, Your confession solidified the president's message. Is everyone really in favor of transparency? This play argues that truth is only welcome until it has negative personal impacts. Events happen which destabilize the world outside. The spin cycle we see on our televisions every day is employed here to question the validity or even usefulness of truth. Someone may be labeled a criminal one day. A major shift in the prevailing winds could change perception into a more socially acceptable label such as political prisoner on the next day. The moral dilemma of self-preservation was particularly interesting. Faced with a Barabbas versus Jesus choice, and one of them was you, how far would you go not to be the one crucified? The production was directed by Eduardo Machado and could benefit from even more tension. Darker lighting might enhance the feeling of suffocating and abject squalor. As designed, the set makes conversations happen between characters facing toward each other and away from the audience. More lines were mumbled and lost than is advisable, although I expected that improved throughout the previews. The fight choreography by Daniel Benhamu was excellent. Anwar Wolf portrayed Jesus and believably conveyed all of the piety required. Matteo D'Amato produced and starred in this play as Bara. It's a juicy role with many different emotions. Mr. D'Amato successfully propelled the story and gave us yet another reason to distrust lawyers and whatever establishment is in power. It was just an envelope. It's not like I killed someone. Next up, let me tell you about Those Muscle-Bound Cowboys from Snake Pit Gulch. Billed as the longest-running annual LGBTQ festival in the world, HOT is a month-long celebration of queer-focused stories. The off-off-Broadway downtown arts incubator Dixon Place has been hosting this event for 28 years. Those Muscle-Bound Cowboys from Snake Pit Gulch is an original musical which was performed for one night. Andy Holliday wrote the book and plays Miss Daisy Lafleur. He works for an East Coast detective agency, but gets sent out west to investigate a murder. Fond of wearing women's clothes, this turns out to be a perfect assignment. Snake Pit Gulch is a town populated only with men. The gold rush brought them here. The town's premier entertainer at the saloon keeps them here. His name is Topeka. When the boys meet me, they shout Eureka. The saloon is owned by Big Jake Slade, and he runs this town with a firm hand and a deep voice. In addition to coveting Topeka, 
He is swindling land claims for his personal benefit. He killed the last sheriff, and the alcoholic Wheezy has replaced him. Everything is going according to plan, except that two brothers inherit a deed from their father. Fresh-faced young cowboys Sam and Evan Cantrell arrive. At first, the oddity of an all-male town is a curious thing. Through nicely written songs, this truly old-fashioned musical will find a way to lasso up the bad guys and let true love bloom. There is even a dream ballet to propel the story forward like Oklahoma, but this one is far gayer and much funnier. The music was written by Frank Shiro and lyrics by C.J. Critt. The jokes are funny and remarkably restrained for a drag entertainment. There is certainly some mild blue material. Nothing is overly raunchy that would declassify this charming little show as a family entertainment. The strip poker game is so tense, my hair is braiding itself. Script in hand, the cast embodied these fun characters with straight faces. Directed by Steve Hauck, the evening felt like watching a fun review in the Catskills. When Daisy lost her place in the script, the ad-libs were even more enjoyable than the written material. Overall, those muscle-bound cowboys from Snake Pit Gulch is more than a great title. This agreeable musical is for anyone who wants an easy laugh and an old-fashioned cowboy. The next play I'd like to talk to you about is A White Man's Guide to Rikers Island. Rikers Island is New York City's notorious jail complex. 85% of the inmates have not been convicted of a crime. Unable to post bail, many defendants are incarcerated until their trial. The rest of the population are convicted criminals serving short sentences. Richard L. Roy tells his own story in A White Man's Guide to Rikers Island. Mr. Roy begins his tale with, I killed a man. I kill a man every night. Every night the same man. Co-written with Eric C. Webb, this confessional play has been enriched with the passage of time. That perspective makes this material much more than a recollection of a white person's experience in jail. Mr. Roy's wrongs are commingled with society's wrongs in an attempt to articulate personal and political outrage. On the stage is an enlarged picture of a very handsome young blonde man in boxing shorts. He is standing next to Muhammad Ali, who has autographed the photo. As a young man, Mr. Roy was a boxer who had the opportunity to spar with the great champion a few times. After getting knocked out once during a professional bout, he quit the sport and turned into an actor. After landing a few gigs right off the bat, Richard goes out with his buddies to celebrate. One more shot of Jack Daniels. Rather than drive home, his destructive voice decides to visit the notorious meat market section of Manhattan. Back in the 1970s, everything was for sale on the streets there. He consumes $30 worth of cocaine, Behind the wheel flying high, he jumps a light and kills a young man on a motorcycle. Richard is the first to point out that he is the embodiment of white privilege. He is released on bail for two years of freedom until the trial. A pricey lawyer gets him a very short six-month sentence. That is why this athletic and blonde epitome of white American male is sentenced to Rikers. 
The rest of his tale is a journey of survival, both physically and mentally. Most of this long monologue is performed by a young actor named Connor Chase Stewart, making his off-off-Broadway debut. That is a good thing, since Mr. Roy doesn't have the chops to hold the stage for this long. Mr. Stewart gets a lot of ground to cover, from wide-eyed fear to egotistical juggler. Learning about juggling is one of the many terms which will be taught to the audience. The title for A White Man's Guide to Rikers Island is taken from some journalistic writings that Mr. Roy did while serving time. He used his heavy sarcasm and intelligence to find a way to thrive in jail. The play is a lesson about race. A quintessentially privileged white man is plunged into a society where he is in the minority. The characters that are impersonated by Mr. Stewart in this monologue are memorable. Some might find the stereotyping objectionable, but the verbal context definitely added color, drama, and humor to this memoir. The thoughtful character growth was also interesting as he examines racism and our judicial system. The topic remains timely and relevant. Mr. Roy obviously has a snarky edge. In the prison paper, he tells us that he keeps the writing light and fun. Everyone is stuck there and no one wants to read someone's bitching about this or that. There are many sarcastic asides tossed around in this autobiography. Many of them are political or observational wisecracks designed to pack a witty punch. They occasionally work, but more often seemed overly forced into the text to boldly highlight feelings of contempt. The moral disgrace of America's race history is the larger target of this story. From a fascinating point of view, Mr. Roy has taken one man's journey to illuminate his observations about an enormous systemic injustice. That is very interesting theater. The performances and staging could certainly be further developed. This monologue should probably be shortened as well. That said, A White Man's Guide to Rikers Island is a serious contribution to our seemingly never-ending but necessary discord on race in America. For the last entry this month, let's visit Pretty Woman. Based on the hugely successful movie which made Julia Roberts a star, Pretty Woman was turned into a Broadway musical. The show opened last summer and was not nominated for a single Tony Award. The original cast was finishing its year-long run, so I decided to catch a glimpse of this critically dismissed but popular show. Vivian Ward is a hooker, but this is a fairy tale. The setting is Hollywood, once upon a time in the 1980s. Edward Lewis is a corporate raider businessman who bumps into Vivian and wants to hire her. That proposal turns into a week-long affair. Like our cockney Eliza in My Fair Lady, she'll dabble in society, this time at the polo grounds. She'll go shopping. She will even break her cardinal rule and kiss her client on the mouth. It's fairly unbelievable that this romantic comedy soft porn could be staged post hashtag me too and the Harvey Weinstein sexual misconduct Hollywood fiasco. In my memory, Julia Roberts made the film somehow innocently charming and zingy fun. I found Samantha Barks' performance to be effortlessly endearing and beautifully sung. She nailed her 11 o'clock empowerment number, I Can't Go Back. 
Like the movie, you have to suspend all disbelief and ignore the slime factor to settle in and enjoy this musical. Miss Barks ensures that will happen in a confidently radiant yet nicely grounded way. As Vivian's fellow working gal and best friend Kit DeLuca, Orfe is brash, funny, and her trademark pipes blast songs into the stratosphere. Eric Anderson completely steals the show from everyone on stage in the double role of Happy Man and Mr. Thompson. He is hilarious as the hotel manager, who oddly becomes the real heart and soul of this musical. Happy Man is a philosophizing hobo and semi-narrator who opens Pretty Woman with Kit and the ensemble singing the woefully predictable Welcome to Hollywood number. It's like Welcome to the Renaissance from Something Rotten, but unfortunately far less tongue-in-cheek. I am an enormous fan of Andy Carl, who plays Edward Lewis. I've seen him in Rocky, Legally Blonde, On the 20th Century, and the exceptionally fine but unloved Groundhog Day. He is never short of excellent. This role, however, is not a perfect fit. I totally bought his musical comedy, Romantic Male Lead Side, but not the ruthless businessman which is significantly, if superficially developed, part of this plot. 1980s pop icon Brian Adams and Jim Valance penned the very average but listenable soft rock score. Mr. Carl's vocals fit the music nicely. He actually sounded quite a lot like Mr. Adams in hits like Summer of 69 and Straight from the Heart. The book is credited to Gary Marshall, the film's director, and J.F. Lawton, the film's writer. Expect no surprises in this unimaginative update. Director and choreographer Jerry Mitchell's production is cheap-looking, and the action is fairly flat. The two-dimensional palm trees get to move in and out frequently to conjure California. The pastel-lit backdrop makes you realize how inadequately space is used. Opulence and splendor is nowhere to be found in David Rockwell's fairly basic scene design. Even the easy liberal Broadway targets misfired for me. The second act opens with another welcome song, this one called Welcome to Our World, More Champagne. The grossly wealthy polo enthusiasts are having an event for charity, and Vivian is clearly not in her element, but smashingly outfitted. High society evilness is mocked with the cynical lyric, whatever charity we dug up. I've known and worked for quite a number of super moneyed individuals. They may be pompous, self-involved, and unconcerned for the common man in their business dealings. I have never met a single one who did not take charity very seriously, although having their name attached is the de rigueur narcissistic cherry on top. All things considered, Pretty Woman is a reasonable evening in the theater. Fans of the film could orchestrate some drinks and dinner, followed by this mediocre but pleasurable enough diversion. Two days ago, there was an announcement that this musical is closing in August, but planning a national tour in 2020. If you can ignore the ickiness factor, perhaps Vivian's unlikely princess story might be a fun night out with the gals. Cocktails are advised. If you stuck with me this far through this lengthy episode, it was a busy theater month for me. I promise that next month's podcast will include the use of the word fantastic much less frequently. 
I uh, also learn a little about my writing and my blogging while rereading it after I've written it. And uh, the word fantastic needs to be put in the drawer just for a little while. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, please send me an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Have a great day, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode.